Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. In turning to Luke chapter 3, this morning I read from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 20. The Word of God reads, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachontinus, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers asked him, And we? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
This morning we mark the return of our focus to the gospel according to Luke after a seven-week hiatus for where our intentions were fixed upon Jesus. The Jesus who we found in our study of Colossians is the, the, who is God's image, who is God's wisdom, and who is God's mystery. The same Jesus who in our last time with Luke was that boy who was at the temple sitting with, among the teachers, listening to them asking them questions. And we spent these last weeks unpacking what it means for Jesus to be the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We looked at Jesus who has created everything through himself and for himself and how we know that Jesus Christ is king of all because he is God himself who died for our sin and rose to life everlasting. We did this to attempt to grow our collective understanding of who Jesus is. And growing our understanding, that's that's a really good endeavor. It's all well and good. But that cannot be all that's taking place in and amongst us. And in approaching this, I began to wonder if our gains, if you will, if we mark any gains at all in our study of God's word, if our gains have only affected our brains, if our gains have done nothing within our hearts, because that would be a terrible thing if that were true. I mean, just imagine for a moment a child whose arms grew rapidly, but their legs did not. Or imagine if their legs grew long, but their arms did not. I mean, if we observed a child whose arms or legs uh, that were not that that did not that did not grow in proportion to one another in length, we might rightly determine that the child had something abnormal going on, and we think this because there's an expectation that that each limb of the body will grow in proportion to the rest. So, if one part of the body is expected to be in proportion to the rest, my friend, it is a bad sign if one's head is to grow faster than their hearts. Yet, this is a danger that faces many who uh, find themselves among a Christian congregation. Many who know far more than they feel. Many who criticize more than they believe. And it's an especially evil thing when one's tongue grows bigger than the head, when that person has more to say than he or she even knows. When that happens, there are, they find themselves in the position uh, that's quite similar to the character that's given to us in Pilgrim's Progress, that book that I've uh, recommended to us on a couple of occasions now. That character is named Mr. Talkative. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll find that Mr. Talkative has quite a bit to say about the road to heaven, but he hasn't gone down that road very far himself. I want us to hold on to that image for a moment. Where are you in relationship to the narrow road that Jesus describes as the way that leads to life? Do you know more about that narrow road than the actual feel of it beneath your feet? Because it's so much, it's so easy to know much about that road. Or moving away from the imagery of a road, it's easy to know a lot about God. It's easy to know a lot about the Word of God. I mean, consider, consider our day and age where there are vast troves of information, even theological information, that is all accessible at your fingertips. 
I mean, in this church across all the ages and stages, by my Natalia math, there are 32 active and unique groups, all meeting with Bibles open and God's word being proclaimed. Praise God, right? Praise God indeed. But also that praise must be balanced with, so what? So what? So what if the only measurable growth in each of us is found in our swelling heads if our hearts remain shriveled? It's one thing to say that you know about God, and it's, all, it's an altogether different thing to say that you know God in a way that has transformed your heart so that it beats for Jesus. If you need proof of this, look no further than the devil. The devil knows a lot about God. The devil knows the word of God. Yet the devil is not concerned with a love for Jesus. And this much we're going to find when we come together in two Sundays and we look at Luke chapter 4. So what I want us to do right now is just pretend that we're with the youngest of children a few hundred feet from this place where we're going to pretend as if we're playing doctor right now, except you and I, we're the patients. We're laid out upon the table, and the doctor's coming with a stethoscope. And that doctor's going to see if he or she can hear a heart in our chest that's been made alive and is beating for Jesus. And as we do this, we turn to the perfectly tuned instrumentation that God has given to us as humanity in his word. That is the Bible. We turn to the word of God. This being the only book that reads us for as much as we read it. It is the God-given stethoscope, the EKG, you name it. It's the instrument that checks the condition of our hearts. And in the word this morning, we find that a fair amount of time has elapsed since the, the last time that we gathered together where we found Mary and Joseph packing up everything and beginning to head back home from that family trip to Jerusalem. Packing up everything except one thing, just a minor thing. That son of God named Jesus. As an aside, maybe just give yourself a little bit of grace if you forget to pack enough socks or underwear or something on your next trip, okay? Just give yourself that grace. Anyway, Luke fast forwards us from the time to where certain men are situated in strategic places within the Roman power structure. The emperor of Rome was named Tiberius, a Tiberius who history records as someone who lived in constant fear of challenges to his authority. The underling of Tiberius was charged with governing the region of Judea. His name is Pontius Pilate. And the ruler of a third of Palestine, his name is Herod. And lest we think that Rome would leave anything to chance, Luke also brings to our awareness two Jewish high priests, each of whom could only assume that office by appointment from Rome. I want to bring this to a landscape, I want to bring the landscape that Luke is outlining to us to our modern day, if you will, for just a moment, so we can really visualize what's going on. If we were to be living in such conditions today, there would be an unelected president in Washington, D.C., who has appointed someone to serve as the governor of Texas, who has appointed someone to serve as judge of Medina County, who has appointed someone to serve as mayor of Divine, and has appointed someone to serve as the pastor of this church. And I specifically mention the likes of Pontius and Pilate and, and Herod and Annas and Caiaphas because these are four men who will continue to play a direct role in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
They're men who, by the time we come to the conclusion of what Luke has recorded for us, will each have royal blood on their hands. And while each of these names that Luke records might appear to be quite impressive in their rule or their reign or their position or their status, ain't a one of them admirable. They'd appear to be men of great influence, yet little did they know that in the wilderness of Judea, in, in a prophet without any following to himself, that God was moving in ways that would shake their rule and alter the course of human history. That God was moving to bring the empires of the world to one step closer to the oblivion that they deserve. And what Luke is bringing to our attention in this text is that God is now going to link the age of promise that is the old covenant to the age of fulfillment that is the new covenant. And as we read the Old Testament, there are numerous instances where God promised to send his Messiah to deliver souls from their bondage to sin. And here in this text, we find both an instance of promise and fulfillment. We read in verses 4 and 6 a reference to what the prophet Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before this time. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 40, where the Lord had declared that his judgment would come. That all the corner cutting and all the advantage seeking ways of man would be rendered null at the judgment of God himself. And in announcing that the coming of, of God's judgment, there would be one whom the word of God would come so that that one would declare the coming of the Lord himself. And Luke records that the word of God comes to John the Baptist in the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But this wasn't the only prophecy fulfilled. No, because God is a promise keeper, he can add or stack or build upon his promises, adding promises to his promises, because he has staked his own reputation on making every last one of them good. This is to say that all the uniqueness and circumstances that surrounded the conception and the birth of that boy who's given to Zechariah and Elizabeth, they weren't just coincidences. No, what the angel had told Zechariah that day in his priestly service at the temple many years before were now being fulfilled. That the son that Elizabeth would bear, as we read in chapter 1, that he would be great before the Lord, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And here we are now, in the 15th, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when what was promised was coming to be. John the Baptist is preaching about God's arrival. He's preaching about God's judgment. And all the while, he's imploring others, repent. Repent. And I got to tell you, what John was calling for here wasn't customary in his day and age. I mean, this whole baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin that he was calling for, that was something completely foreign to an everyday Jew. I mean, an everyday Jew would hear this and be like, baptism? In the River Jordan? Why do I need that? I mean, when I go to the temple or if I go to the synagogue, I clean myself up just enough to clear the, the entrance so I can get into those places. And John's saying, yeah, well, that may be well and good and true. But you can get cleaned up the way the priests have always told you. But all the while, while you go through those motions, your heart has never been in any of it. 
you've just been playing church. I mean, you come and go. You do so to keep up appearances, but truly, you're mocking God. And you can convince others of so many things that are not true about you, but the Lord knows the secret things of what beats in your chest. The Lord knows what you know about yourself that you've chosen to ignore, that you live with this sense of guilt and you can't shake free from it. And so John calls sinners to baptism, to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. He calls these sinful men and women to immerse their lives in the God that he is announcing the arrival of. He calls them to stop living for themselves and to stop living for the compromised kingdoms of the world. He calls them to become aware of their need to be born into the kingdom of God. My friend, is that you this morning? Is that you? Have you just been playing church? You've been playing church because in the coming and the going, you believe that you're maybe trading your sin for God's grace because you've worked out some imaginary deal that, uh, that's, that's been exacted between you and God. I'm reminded of an old saying that goes that he or she would sow wild oats on the weekdays and pray for crop failure on Sundays. Is that you? Like the people to whom John preached, we must understand that there is neither a secretness to our faith, nor is there a thing as partial obedience to the gospel. My friend, if you have, if you have met the risen Lord Jesus, he calls you to identify with him in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Be the first step of obedience by being baptized publicly. And for every step that follows until he calls you home unto himself, your life is lived in submission to the king who has called you into his kingdom by his grace. And my friend, your willful obedience to him is an offering of thanksgiving. Now I know some of this lands on your ear and it sounds repulsive because we live in an age where the idea of any sort of commitment to the nature that I speak of is rejected. I mean, we despise contracts, don't we? The cable man comes, or the cell phone company comes, or whoever wants to lock us in for 12, 18, 24, 36 months, they want to lock us in, we're out. We want the freedom to do whatever we want. We want to do whatever we want when we want it. And I imagine that some reject Jesus for this very reason. People look at the life of Christians and they think, hey, man, that's, that's a boring life to live. I mean, he just goes to work and he comes home to his family every night. Who wants to do that? His family prioritizes church over everything else. How pious of them. I mean, they, they even give their hard-earned money to the church. I mean, is there really even such a thing as sin? That just sounds like something that's contrived to try to control people. Why would anyone ever want to limit themselves to a lifestyle that says getting drunk is wrong? Or having sex with whoever is wrong? Or dressing provocatively is wrong? Why would anyone ever want to do that? And by the way, this is where we all start in life. Maybe we don't voice it in just those ways. But we start out with a contentment in our independence. 
We start out like teenagers who cannot wait to finally be free from the iron-fisted rule of mom and dad who have just kept them pinned down from all of the, the fun and pleasures that are available in life. And so we spring forth and we go out and we do whatever we please, believing that we are living free. But that freedom isn't actually real. It's a lie. This lie closes our eyes to the fact that we are bound by shackle and chain to all that is empty and dead. That is until there's an intervention and our eyes are open to real freedom and to real life. I mean, until our eyes are open to someone who is far greater, to our eyes are open to the only one who can set us free from the death that we're bound to. And often that eye-opening moment comes in the form of something as harsh as maybe when I wake up my, my girls in the morning by playing a recording of Reveille on the bugle. It's really fun to do that, by the way. But in John the Baptist's case, this comes by welcoming people as they come to the waters of baptism. You brood of vipers! Oh. I bet many of us are very grateful that John the Baptist is not leading up our hospitality ministry at this church, right? Could you imagine walking in this morning being greeted by a smiling face? Welcome to First Baptist Church, you son or daughter of snakes. Can I offer you a bulletin? Could you imagine dropping your kids off at the education wing with the sign over it that says, Little Dennis Snake, or Little Snake's Den, something like that. Could you imagine that? That'd be sort of shocking, wouldn't it? But that's how John's greeting these people who were coming to the Jordan for baptism, for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Why is he saying these things? Why is he being so abrasive, so direct? He's getting to the heart of the matter for everyone. He's calling to everyone's attention that until we are born of the Spirit, until our hearts are renewed, we are not God's children as some cheesy cheap t-shirts and coffee mugs might try to, to say otherwise. Rather, until we are born again, until God has gifted to us new hearts, Jesus says himself that we are children of our father, the devil. That's why if someone comes up to me and says something like, Pastor Dan, I want to get baptized, I always ask a leading question, I was going to say one question, there's usually lots of questions, but the leading question is, why? Why do you want to get baptized? Now, my approach is certainly more gentle than John's, um, but it's with the same intent. It's with the same intent. It's with this intent. It's because the devil knows that all this business, he knows all the business about the cost of following Jesus. He knows all about that. The devil knows the need to be born again if anyone's to actually be saved. The, that lying devil of hell knows that, that he can make someone believe that all they need to do is get dunked and then they can go on living however they want. That's all he has to convince them of. Just go on their way, believing they're right with God, but their heart cold and dead as ever. My friend, do you know what the devil's game plan is for you? His game plan is to lure you into a place of relative confidence before God, where if you were asked, why should God let you into heaven? You'd start your answer, answer with the first person singular. You'd start your answer with I. You'd start by saying, well, I got baptized. I, I, I never missed a Sunday. I went on that mission trip. I fed the hungry. I gave to the poor. 
Now, there's one problem with starting that answer with I, though, that I need to make you aware of. I cannot go to a cross for sin. I cannot empty a tomb. I cannot defeat the power of sin and death. Jesus can. Jesus has. No one else. That's why there is salvation in no one else. That's why there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that's the truth that the devil would obscure from you and I. He would attempt to keep us from knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. He would see us remain dead in our sin, trusting in ourselves, and not in the one who is mighty and able to save. My friend, there is no single thing that you nor I can do to save ourselves. Baptize, getting baptized won't do it. I can't baptize enough people to get me into heaven. Let me tell you that. Nothing we can do. Perfect church attendance won't do it. You can't have put enough in that offering plate that went around. No, but it is by grace, the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that anyone might be saved. This is God's gift to you. You but have to receive it. And if you were to receive this gift from God, the gift is going to transform you. The gift is going to change you. The gift will not leave you how you were before you received it. It will bring you under new management. And whether you and I are first century tax collectors and soldiers like those who interact with John, or we're 21st century educators and business owners, our thoughts, our passions, our actions, our complete way of living is going to be changed. It will be transformed. This gift is a call to a life that honors Christ as a humble expression of adoration and thanksgiving offered in response to the gift of God in Christ Jesus. It's a life that's been saved from judgment because Jesus took our blame. A life that's been saved from God's wrath because Jesus was subjected to it for us. And besides the aspects of future implications of the gospel's effect upon a life, it's a life that reveals God's glory because there is a very present reality for the Christian. And I'm going to tell you, if that's true for any one of us, others are going to know it. May I look this morning at the little boys and girls. If you have been born again by the Spirit of the living God, your teachers are going to know it. Young people, teenagers, if you have been born again by the Spirit of the living God, your parents are going to know it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have been born again by the Spirit of the living God, everyone with whom you interact with, everyone with whom you have business dealings with, they are going to notice. Authentic, Holy Spirit-given transformation, it's obvious. And yet I have to say right now a word of warning about what change is or what transformation is and what it is not. Because see, far too often we, what gets sold around churches is, uh, is just this idea that we just have to live within a certain set of boundaries. We have boundary markers that as long as we, we stay on the field, we don't go out of bounds, that's what we're looking to see that, that the spirit of the living God is active in our lives. What am I mean? Well, in Baptist life, we have trained generations to conform to boundaries and only paid lip service to Holy Spirit transformation. 
I want to give you an example that I'm confident is true in this, in, of this church. Do you remember the offering envelopes that would have been passed around in Sunday schools where you could record your name, the amount of your offering, the number of phone calls and visits you made that week? And on the bottom of that slip, there were boxes that you could check. Do you remember that? I hope you do. I know the 830 service, there were nods, so I know it's been around here. With each box you checked, you worked your way to 100%. Everybody loves working towards 100%, right? If you were present in Sunday school, check, you got 20%. You were on time for Sunday school, check, you got 10% more. You brought your Bible, check again, tack on another 10. You made an offering of any amount, 10% more. If you actually read your Sunday school lesson before you came to Sunday school, Boy, howdy, check, you got 30% to your credit. And you get another 20% if you just attended the preaching on Sunday. You didn't even have to sit through this whole thing that we call the worship service. You just had to make it and suffer through my part of it, if you will, that you are right now. And if you did that, you went from 80 to 100%. You checked all the boxes. Voila, you are a 100% Christian. Now, here's the thing. None of those things are bad. Not a one. Actually, I wouldn't discourage any one of you from those things at all, but I would just add, come to the first part of the worship service, okay? We come together as a corporate body to worship the living Christ. But as an observation, in my own experience, I've heard those same categories applied to measure the sanctification, to, to measure the genuineness of someone's faithfulness to Christ. I mean, it could be something like, hey, did you hear that, that that stinking evil Dan Newberg got saved? Oh, no way. That guy from Natalia got saved? Praise God. How do you know he got saved? Well, he carries the Bible everywhere he goes. Or maybe more pessimistically, can you believe her? She claims to be born again. Doesn't even carry a Bible with her. Not in a Sunday school class. My friend, those are all things that an unconverted person can do, by the way. Do you know what an unconverted person cannot do? These are the ways by which we should measure, by the way. An unconverted person cannot grow in love and affection for God. An unconverted person cannot. An unconverted person cannot grow in love and affection toward their neighbor either. That's only by the leading and the empowerment of the Spirit of the living God active and residing in our lives. Now, on his day, on the day of his crucifixion, there were two thieves crucified and raised on either side of Jesus. One of the two thieves looked upon the sinless Savior and experienced transformation. He looked upon Jesus and asked for King Jesus to remember him. This is the guy who was cussing out Jesus, and as an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, he is now in a moment of repentance, acknowledging his undeservedness of God's mercy and grace not baptized, not carrying a Bible, not on a Sunday school roster. There's one more thing that transformation does, and it's what we see John doing in verses 15 through 20. He's preaching the good news of the, of the coming of God's Messiah who will deliver sinners. He's declaring the day and the name of the Lord. He's preaching about the hypocrisy of those Roman rulers who start the chapter and how a perfect king is coming and is bringing his kingdom of righteousness with him. 
And in the midst of his preaching, when given the opportunity to take credit for himself, to feed the pride of his flesh, he lifts the eyes of those to whom he is preaching because their gaze has been set far too low. He says that forgiveness for sin is something that he cannot give himself. He doesn't have the authority to do so. That forgiveness for sin can only come from God himself. That can only come from the God who's willing to extend forgiveness to fallen creatures by becoming one of them himself. And John pointed others to Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of God, whom all authority in heaven and earth dwelled in bodily form. My friend, if King Jesus is growing your heart, then he is doing the work of joining your heart with his. And so you love what he loves, and your heart breaks with what his heart breaks over. John the Baptist was appointed to a specific assignment for a specific time to prepare the, the arrival of the King of Kings. And yet you and I have a similar call. We've been commanded by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that King Jesus has commanded. And we have the command of the king to make his name known, to point the lost and the hell-bound to Jesus, because at the heart of the matter, God our Savior desires all people to be saved from his coming judgment. We're commanded to point others to the Savior who began a good work in us by transforming, by changing our lives from what they once were, where they were once enslaved to things like drunkenness and sexual perversions and sourcing our identity in ourselves. We do this not because we want to train a people to check six boxes to be whatever Nashville declares a 100% Christian to be, but because we know the power of Christ and his resurrection. We know that Messiah Jesus was promised and he came. We know that his substitutionary death was promised and it happened. We know that his resurrection was promised. And my friend, he got up from that grave. We know that his return in glory is promised. And I ain't about to be the first person who's going to doubt that God's going to start, stop fulfilling his promises right now. And because of that, my friend, you and I have the charge, the call to go and preach good news. To point others to Jesus. That's what you and I have the sacred privilege of doing. It's what a sister in our congregation did this week. I'm told that she was being criticized for no longer living a life of partying and getting drunk. And her criticizers, they knew of her past. And they were aware that her past is no longer her present. It's no longer true for her. And these criticizers, man, they were calling everything into question. They asked her, so why'd you give it all up? I mean, they're trying to rationalize this. Maybe there's a medical condition, can't do this anymore, whatever. Her response was four words. Four words that make all the sense to the living and four words that are foolishness to the perishing. In answering for the unbelievable change that has taken place in her life, the that the criticizers were calling into question, our sister said this, because I met Jesus. Because I met Jesus. My friend, have you met Jesus? 
Have you met him? If you have, go and preach good news. Tell of his marvelous works. Point the lost to Jesus. And if you haven't, permit me the privilege of introducing you to him. I would tell you that he has an outward appearance of being gentle and extremely humble. But don't let that appearance make you think lightly of him. He is the mightiest you will ever meet. He is faster, stronger, and smarter than anyone else in all of history. You may not know this about him, but he commands the armies of heaven. By his word, he has spoken all things into existence, and by his word, all creation will be judged. That includes you. And yet, don't be surprised when you hear this, but he already knows of you. He knows of you because he is your creator, and he gives your life worth because he has made you in his image. He has sent his word that he desires you to know him because unless you come to know him, you will not know true peace in this life or you will, and you will not know true peace and what comes after it. In fact, he is the only person who is able to offer the peace that you have been searching for your entire life. This is peace that only he can offer because he paid the price to obtain the olive branch of peace that he extends and offers to you today. He knows that deep within you that you long for peace and in all the ways that you failed in trying to obtain it for yourself, he's able to offer it to you because he has never failed. He wants you to know that he extends true peace to you today. He'd never reject you if you come to receive this peace that I speak of. He's not going to bring up all the ways that you have failed. He won't ask you to try to make up for your failures. Not going to do that. He won't because he's already paid the debt of your failings by being beaten and whipped and scourged. He's already paid the debt by being nailed to and hung upon a cross. You may not know it, but he's God. He's deserving of the grandest of trumpet announcements, and yet he prefers to extend an invitation to meet him in this way. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This Jesus that I'm introducing you to is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is alive today, and he's alive forevermore. And I am an unworthy messenger of this message of salvation, this message of hope. And yet I have met this king that I introduced you to. And I can only conclude in this way, by saying that your salvation, your peace, only comes by his name and none other. His name is Jesus. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guest at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, 
May God bless you and keep you.